We didn't intend for Stitch to really speak. We thought, he's going to be Dumbo. We're going to go through the whole film and he will just be pantomime. And so as the film developed and as the story developed, it became obvious that he was going to have to say a few things. And then later on, it became obvious he was going to have to say a couple very important things. Mm -hmm. So um, as I pitched my boards, I would just assign it this voice, which I would, it's a voice that I used to, you know, annoy people at the studio. And I'd call them on the phone and I'd go, hello, 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 how are you doing? What are you doing? Um, so I'd call them up and use that voice and stuff like that. And Dean said, my co-director, uh, co-director, co-writer, um, said Dean Debelois, by the way, let's, <laughs> Dean Debelois is 50% of the directing and the writing on this, on this project. And uh, he said, well, why don't we just use that voice? It works. So I started uh, recording the voice and, and we would drop it into the reels and stuff like that. Um, we wanted to avoid hiring like a real actor. Mm -hmm. The fear was, and it was a, it's a, it's a legitimate fear, is that if you hired somebody like, you know, Robert Redford to come in um, and do like 18 words, that eventually the studio would turn around and go, what are you doing? Give him yeah. a bigger role, you know? And that the studio would push back and go, he needs more words, he, he needs a bigger role. And then that would start to throw the story and the characters off balance. The idea of having somebody who's a nobody like me do the voice works really well because no one is going to ask for more of me so i get to do just as much as we need and no more hey guys it's your host julian this week i sit down with the father of lilo and stitch mr chris sanders chris talks about how the voice of stitch came to be some fun stories with roy disney how to train your dragon and so much more chris was one of those guests that i never thought i would have on and just to sit and kick it with them was truly a special moment for me I hope you guys enjoy the show, and thanks for listening. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to What's in My Head podcast. I'm your host, Julian, and today I'm joined by the father of Lilo and Stitch, Mr. Chris Sanders. Chris, thank you for coming on the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, man, it would it's you are one of those guests. Not only have I heard your name pop up on one of my favorite animation podcasts, the Bancroft Brothers podcast, uh, I loved I loved hearing the stories that, that they've told about you. And then you actually popped up on my John Sanford episode, too, because uh, he said you and him were really big. He was talking about and we'll get to Lilo and Stitch. Uh, when we were talking Mulan, he was like, uh, we would bump into each other. Uh, I think it was albums, album stores or, or record stores. And then he was like, Chris was the first guy that I ever met. And he's like, probably the only guy. And I'm paraphrasing now at this point. But he was like, when he said he was going to pull an all nighter, he was pulling an all-nighter and I can't remember <laughs> what scene he was he you were working on or that he was referencing but he was like we went home well I went home and then he's like I came back the next day and Chris was wearing the same clothes oh, yeah. he, was, he was barely there physically and mentally because he literally pulled an all-nighter and then he <laughs> was like he walked into my office and he was like I drew this for you or I drew this and I just need to give this to you. And I need to start doing this more often. And he told me this story. And I thought it was hilarious. And I just, I'm like, man, Chris has been such a huge part of my childhood and my adulthood. And now my kid's childhood. I was like, I got to have the guy on, man. Do you remember that story that John Sanford was talking about? I remember a lot of late nights on Mulan. I'll tell you that, that, yeah. that was, um, uh, that was one of the hardest films we ever worked on. Mm -hmm. That was a, that was, um, six years start to finish that was extremely long for uh, an animated film for any film but for, even for an animated film that was um i would say that would be a little bit too long because if you think about it people who had 
who gave birth to children at the beginning of the the um, the thing brought them true. They brought them to the premiere as six year olds. Yeah. So that's too long. Um, but there were there are a lot of reasons for that, and there's a lot of stories involved in that. That was the first film that the Florida studio did all by themselves, mm-hmm. and um, that was a huge triumph for them. I was introduced to the Florida studio while I was working on The Lion King. Um, and a lot of people don't know that the Florida studio did a third of that film. They did a huge part of that film. Um, and, uh, and it started as an exhibit that you would visit if you were, if you were visiting Disney world. Mm -hmm. So you would, you would go to the animation thing and you would, you would go into this, um, pre-show that would show you a movie that would like get you all excited about the animation process. And then you would go through these long, long tunnels and they had a glass wall and you would look down into a working studio. And originally it was just supposed to be like people that would be park employees. And I guess, which is really odd, I guess they were supposed to just be down there pretending to animate. And I can't think of anything that would be more difficult than pretending to do something you know, you could do that for a few minutes, but if you think about like eight hour day is doing that, that's really painful. Um, and the guy who was in charge of that studio, his name was Max Howard, and it was his mission to make it a real studio. So he made that his project and he accomplished it. Um, and so going out there for Lion King, I was introduced to the studio. And it was really interesting because that studio was a real once in a lifetime thing. The, the animation studio in California, it was, it was the grown up you know, ancestor of the original studio that Walt Disney started. There is a continuity of existence. There's a continuity of existence. And so people came and they went and the studio went on and on. But the Florida studio was brand new and it was filled with young talent. And they had gathered those people from from Sheridan and from Ringling and from all over the place, but a lot of local places as well. And they were very, very young and they were incredibly talented. And that was the thing that really struck me when I went down there is how talented, but how eager and hungry these artists were to make movies and to prove themselves. So Mulan was the first movie they did by themselves. And they really, really showed their potential. Well, the potential, there was no longer potential. They showed what they could do Mm -hmm. on that film. So we were really fortunate. John and I were both very fortunate to go down there. And and, uh, I was fortunate to meet them on Lion King. Um, so when I got the chance to go out for for Mulan, I just I leapt at that. I was like, I would love to go back down there. And then of course, when Lilo and Stitch came up, and they said, you know, where would you want to make this? I said, I will be very very happy to make this at the Florida studio again. Was Lilo and Stitch a hundred percent? And like I said, this this podcast, the reason it's called What's in My Head is because it's going to jump all over the place. And you you've worked your career is so vast. I mean, your resume is pretty deep. So we're going to jump all over the place, but on Lilo and Stitch for just a second, well, for a little while at least, um, was that done 100% in Orlando? 100%. Nothing was done in California on that. Um, Yeah. So um, the art director, um, uh, Rick Sluter, uh, was one of the first people I actually met when I went down for Lion King. And for Lion King, I I was down there to art direct and and such um the some of the song sequences so i can't wait to be king was the first thing i did down at the florida studio and um there's a lot of story i see this <laughs> this good this is a podcast because my answers tend to go on and on and on but um i met rick sluter and his team of background painters mm-hmm. and we were in a room talking about how we could accomplish this sequence and how we could achieve the look and um and that was my first 
introduction to that studio. And um, I was so impressed with them. These are guys that would paint all day long, all week long. And yeah. then on the weekend, they would gather their paint and they would go out to like a, a, a national park or someplace and they would paint over the weekend because they were just constantly learning and improving their craft. And that was not the case in California. California was, I mean, very, very talented. Absolutely. But they, they were more established and they had a, they had, they had a routine of doing things that was very, very successful. And so um, it was, it was interesting to go down to Florida and be with people that were, they were eager to experiment and try new things, which served them well on Lilo and Stitch because we did watercolor backgrounds on that. That's what made it so like, I remember seeing this movie as a kid. My mom took, this is probably the last movie and my mom's still around. So I don't want people to think she's dead, but I mean, this was the, the last movie my mom took me to like as a kid and shit. So, mm. I mean, I remember going to see this and then just being blown away. I mean, it's just like, wow. I mean, it was so fun. It was so whimsical, like everything about it jumped off the screen from the colors to the characters, to the voices, to just everything, man. Uh, I know you've told the story a thousand times and I've heard the story about how how the voice kind of came in to be. Uh, but for the fans that might not have heard it, man, where were you when when Stitch kind of came into your life? Do you remember? Got to imagine you, mean, you do. Do you mean like the character, the voice? Or... Yeah, we'll start. We'll start with the stitch. Yeah, we'll start with the character or the voice. Excuse me. We'll start with the voice, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, you I mean we 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 didn't intend for Stitch to really speak. We thought he's going to be Dumbo. We're going to go through the whole film, and he will just be pantomime. And so, as the film developed and as the story developed, it became obvious that he was going to have to say a few things. And then later on, it became obvious he was going to have to say a couple of very important things. Mm -hmm. So um, as I pitched my boards, I would just assign it this voice, which I would, it's a voice that I used to, you know, annoy people at the studio. And I'd call them on the phone and go, hello, 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 how are you doing? What are you doing? Um, so I called him up and used that voice and stuff like that. And Dean said, my co-director, uh, co-director, co-writer, um, said Dean Deblois, by the way, let's <laughs> Dean Deblois is 50% of the directing and the writing on this on this project. And uh, he said, Well, why don't we just use that voice? It works. So I started uh, recording the voice and and we would drop it into the reels and stuff like that. Um, we wanted to avoid hiring like a real actor mm -hmm. the fear was and it was a it's a it's a legitimate fear is that if you hired somebody like you know robert redford to come in um and do like 18 words that eventually the studio would turn around and go what are you doing give him yeah. a bigger role you know and that the studio would push back and go he needs more words he, he needs a bigger role and then that would start to throw the story and the characters off balance the idea of having somebody who's a nobody like me do the voice works really well because no one is going to ask for more of me so i get to do just as much as we need and no more but boy oh boy were you wrong because i got to imagine on a daily basis how often first off i told you i wouldn't ask anything personal and this is kind of personal but it kind of not do you have kids uh yeah yeah one. so the only reason i asked that question is because I've, I've, so we've got a third, almost a 13 year old. And then we have uh, a one year old. My, my youngest son will be a one in two days, right? He turns one in fr on Friday. Hey! Yeah. So I'm, I'm super uh -huh. pumped. Um, and uh, so 
I've, I'm reading them a book every single night before we go to be before we go to bed. And then it's the same book every night as of uh, not as of late, but probably for like the last seven months, it's been the same book every night. I'll start reading one and he's starting to say some word. He's starting to say book and he says ball and you know, say dad and mom and stuff like that. Or he say Bubba for brother. Um, but uh, so his book is where the wild things are. Right. Oh. So he I don't know what it is about this book, but we I was reading like four or five different books to him. And before we hit uh, where the wild things are and I see this one, and he just goes, "Ooh, right. So that's the first thing he says. I'm like, man, this might be the one because we get two pages into it and he just didn't care. So this one, I would start doing all the voices whenever the wild things start, you know, talking and stuff. Um, and then he would just, he would get smiley. Right. And I do it with my older son too, but at a certain stage, my son would go, dad, just read it regular. You're not, you're not good at these voices. It's just kids are the most honest people you'll ever meet. Right. So you just, dad, 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 just do a regular voice. Just read it. You don't have to do these voices that you're bad at. I got to imagine with you having kids, how often did they ask you to do stitch? Oh man, I don't, <laughs> only once in a while, you know, really? I don't think, yeah, because, you know, I don't think she was like, by the time she understood that I had done that, it was probably like beyond, you know, if I'd had a stitch book, <laughs> if I'd had a stitch book, it probably would have been different, Yeah, you know? Um, yeah, not that often. I do, now, now that I go to Comic-Con, you know, I go to Comic-Cons all the time and stuff and people will come up and we'll do that. And, um, and that kind of thing. But, and for a while I couldn't do it just because I had this, I had a little bit of surgery on my neck for yeah. a, you know, a non-serious issue, but I just had to have a little thing, you know, my neck had a little thing and I couldn't do it for a while, but yeah. then I got, you know, then I got it back. So I'd still do it. Like I do it like probably once a month. I I'd go yeah. down to, uh, to the studios here in, in uh, Burbank and do a recording for a, a video game or a, a cruise, a cruise show or a yeah. parade. I do a lot of parades. <laughs> which is fun. I'm glad they keep bringing you back because you, I hear all the time. The only reason I asked you that story was because uh, I had the, my first guest on this podcast was a legendary Rob Paulson, legendary voice actor, right? One of my favorite voice actors of all time. Um, and you know, he's most known for just depending on the generation, but most notably, I mean, as he was Raphael in the 87 TMNT show oh. and in the 2012, he was Donatello. Um, so I, the first one of the first questions and I go back and I listen to that episode and it's so cringeworthy because it's it's like third episode or third you know time um, interviewing somebody or having a chat with somebody and then so I'm asking him this question I'm like how often did did you have to do it or he's like my my son's friends would call me all the time or they would call him and they say hey can you put your dad on they're like hey hey, hey Mr. Paulson Mr. Rob can you do Raphael? My friends are over here. Can you do it? And he would, he would go right into it or he'd go through the drive through. So anytime I get to have somebody that's got some voice acting chops on, I like to ask what's the craziest place they've ever done it. So have you ever went through a drive through and done stitch through a drive through? Okay. That's kind of funny because I did a whole TikTok where I was doing that. Um, it was only a few months ago and uh, there, I, to my complete surprise, there was a huge stitch promotion um, and the, that was going to be the toy of the Happy Meals. Yeah. And I thought, oh, I'm going to do a TikTok. And I'm just going to go to, all, to I'm going to go to all these drive-throughs, and I'm going to order things as Stitch or as though Stitch is in the car with me. And I did that, and I recorded a bunch of them, and then and then I put them all together, and um, no one got it. Like what? no one, no one got it. Uncultured. Was, I mean, people understood me, but they were like, "Uh huh." And what else do you and like? I think they were just yeah. They were like, and they hated their life. <laughs> they they just went through the normal routine of of like, and and do you want do you want a drink? 
You want fries and, with that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Shamrock shake, I would say. And they'd go, okay. Or do you want, or they'd say, milk? Did you say milk? They're like, no, no, no. Shamrock shake. So, yeah. I, but it was fun. The first time I did it, I was like so nervous. I'm like, are they just going to yell at me or throw me out or something like that? But they were like, they just, and then pretty soon I realized, oh, they're just not going to react. If you're into anime, manga, comic books, movie reviews, or just pop culture, Spoiler Force Podcast is the place for you. Not only do I talk about nerdy topics, I have conversations with a variety of guests, such as musicians, Comic-Con artists, cosplayers, other podcasters, and people from all over the world. Join me as I go on this journey to find ways to help others express themselves with their creativity. They're like, whatever. You ever tried to use it on the cop? Never had that opportunity. (laughs) Thank goodness. Oh, that's fantastic, man. So with with Lilo and Stitch, I'm glad you brought up Rick Sluter because I've actually, I'm I'm in talks with him coming on. Uh, We're trying to get our our, our, uh, schedules to match up. Um, So he'll be coming on soon too, because uh, his name has popped up a few times. I had Aaron Blaze on not too long ago and Tom Cito as well. Um, And they both brought up Rick and they said how how phenomenal he was. And it's so crazy. You were talking earlier that that the younger cats would, would leave from the Orlando studios and they would go and paint. They would go, uh, Aaron told me that they would go to the zoo all the time and they would just get the animals in there and their natural poses or they'd find something. Um, and it, it's crazy on how many of those younger guys that came from Florida, they didn't really want to do like, I think Aaron brought it up. He's like, I really didn't want to do animation. He was like, I want to be a wildlife painter and a photographer and all this other stuff. This, I want to be a wildlife artist is what he said. Um, I, I, is there just a common link with Disney and, and that style, like that, that wild animation or that wild, um, that wild artistry, because you guys use so many different animals in all of these movies, these anthropomorphic animals. Um, I mean, is that just a, a skill that accelerates or sets somebody apart as far as an animator goes for the Disney studios? It'd be a really interesting thing to study, actually, the, the different avenues by which people found their way to the studio. There's, mm-hmm. abs- there's absolutely like uh, animals and art and, and, and stuff. Um, it's got to be a common, a common thread. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, was, I remember I was watching an interview with Glenn Keane, and he's so, he's a great interview. Yeah, he is a, a smart guy. Um, but he said one time, I remember in an interview, he said that, um, you know, a lot of us do what we do because we're not we want to be actors, but we're, we're more actors on the inside. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that is true. Like I like to express myself, but I'd never had this urge to get up in front of people and sing or dance or act yeah. or anything like that. Nonetheless, I had things I wanted to say. So I would start like as a kid, I did these little comics and I would draw comics and I really admired Charles Schultz wow. and, and peanuts and stuff. So I wanted to do that. Um, and inadvertently I was you know locking myself into story now here's an interesting thing a long time ago at Disney Studios we had this little gallery space and we would put up exhibits and people would come up with ideas for exhibits and um, I came up with this idea to do an exhibit of art that people had done when they were kids Mm -hmm. so I asked people to just anybody to submit things that they had done as a kid that we would frame it and put it up and the thing I immediately noticed is that painters painted Mm -hmm. as kids and animators drew there was no 
there was it was a hundred percent they yeah. were it's so story artists and animators were submitting drawings line drawings and painters were submitting paintings and i thought that's very interesting so um there are definitely avenues by which people came to stuff i was inadvertently getting a little bit of contact with story and i didn't really understand how important that was and uh this may link to something we want to talk about a little bit later but um i remember when i was a kid i would be very anxious to watch anything on the wonderful world of disney mm -hmm. that talked about how the studio worked those how how it's made uh, movies have varying degrees of writing and fantasy yeah. that are layered on top of them like they love to like you know stage things they have a camera would come in and animators would be jumping around or wearing silly outfits um or they would push into a life drawing class but instead of a, a human model there'd be like an elephant or something like that but the one room that they tended to not you know focus on too much was story mm -hmm. and i was really fascinated and confused by that like like there would be a door it would say story and i thought what even does that mean exactly? Yeah. Um, and the weird thing is at the same time, I'd be wondering how is it that all these animators know that, I really did think that animators came in, they sat down at a desk and they started drawing something that they really loved, like an owl yeah. doing something. And later on, all this stuff would sort of magically link up and make a film. And of course I was not, I was missing the obvious answer, which is it's the, it's the story room yeah. that is guiding this whole thing. Um, and so later on, that's where I ended up. And then I, you know, I learned later that if you want to direct, if you want to write, if you want to do these things, story is the place you want to be because that is at the end of the day, that's the thing that guides everything. When Dean and I uh, directed Lilo and Stitch was the first thing that we both directed. We directed it together and we actually had a conversation like, well, how are we going to do this? Because, you know, we both come from, you know, we storyboard mm -hmm. uh, for a living and we don't animate, we don't paint backgrounds, we don't, uh, we don't work with camera. How in the world are we gonna do this? We're, we're out of our depth. And we both realized that, you know what? We'll just do it by staying in story. Whenever we talk to an actor or an animator or a background artist, what we'll talk about is story. So we'll say, in the story, this is what we need. And one of the things that really worked out well with that is it let people do what they do. I didn't try to I didn't try to insinuate myself into an animator's office and tell him how to move a character. Yeah. I would let them decide that. I would simply say, or Dean would say, at this moment, Lilo is this. She's this or that, and you figure out how to do that. And um, it really worked out well because we didn't try to over control anything. Our motto, or or I guess. Motto, I guess. Um, our guiding principle was that we will tell people what we need, and they're going to go away, and they're going to bring back something. And if what they bring back, whether or not it matches what I had in my head, if it accomplishes the goal, then we're done. Yeah. And that's exactly what we did. So animators would be able to do things in their own way, and they. And I mean, so many times you'd get something so much better than you were imagining. Um, same with background, same with camera, same with all this stuff. And we've always stuck to that. So story is, if anybody wants to do anything, I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but if anybody wants to do anything in film um, or animation or whatever, you want to start in story. Yeah. And keeping it on Charles Schultz for just a second. So I'm a huge Schultz fan. I don't know if you can, I don't know if you'll be able to see it, but uh, here, boom. So my little, oh my God. My little Snoopy and my Woodstock, and I can't do it on this hand, but 
my little Charlie Brown is on that side. I'm a huge, I'm a huge, it's disgusting. I'm a huge Charles Schultz fan. Um, That guy has came up more. I had the curator on um, back in January. I think it was like the the first, first week of January. I had the, uh, the curator for the Charles Schultz museum. Um, And he was, he was a phenomenal get like hearing some of those stories uh, that, that he would tell, or his, his wife would come in and tell um, about old Sparky. Uh, were some of my were some of my favorite stories I've ever gotten here on here. So I'm so glad you brought them up. Um, but sticking on Lilo and Stitch uh, and and the story department for just a few, how personal was Lilo and Stitch? I got to imagine with this being, you know, I mean, you were the voice. I mean, you're the embodiment of Stitch. You know, so I mean, how personal was this story to you? There's a lot of, th- I mean, there are so many things from my own experience that are in there. A good example would be um, in the scene where Lilo and her, and her sister Nani get in this big fight and it ends with Lilo screaming into a pillow and <laughs> Nani screaming into a pillow. That's just a direct reference to my sister who yeah. would just did that, which she got really upset. So um, that would find its way into the story. Um, it's one of those inter- interesting things that there's, there are some things that, that, um, directly link to things that I've experienced. And there's a lot of stuff that's just fantasy. A lot of it came from Mulan. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dean and I both went through the six years of making Mulan. And again, we are immensely proud of it. And I watched it not that long ago and I was amazed by it. I literally was like, my my mouth was hanging open. I'm like, this is a really good movie. And I was actually like, I was like, I was like gasping. I was all surprised and I was all involved. And I'm like, why are you gasping? You know what this, you know, you know the story pretty darn well. Um, You were there for every square inch of it. Uh, Nonetheless, I was really enjoying it. Um, but Lilo and Stitch was a bit of a reaction to that because um, there was a lot of things about the making of it that we felt we could learn from. Mm-hmm. So um, Lilo and Stitch, like Dean and I were just on a, on a, on an, in an interview and he was reminding me that we wanted our crew to not have to just, we didn't want anybody getting a divorce or, or yeah. like, you know, having to you know, seek therapy after they finished this movie because it had been so physically exhausting on them. We wanted people to work a hard day, but then go home, you know, and take a break and stuff like that. So we wanted, we wanted to try to keep everything um, in perspective. And Dean and I took it on the chin story-wise because um, we started with a story crew of about you know five or so people. And during the production, it eventually boiled and dwindled down to Dean and I. And uh, in the closing in the closing months of the of the film, Dean and I would be doing storyboards at night. Um, we'd be directing during the day, storyboarding at night. And um, and uh, Dean and I were on the phone once one evening, and uh, it was getting late. And Dean said, "Well, I better go." He said, "I I I got to start boarding so that I can be crying by three a.m." And I. I, I, I burst into laughter. I was like, oh my God, you do that too. <laughs> I didn't realize that because I was going through the same thing where the most bitter, bitter thing was you'd be storyboarding and you'd be looking at the clock and you're like, I just want to go to bed. Yeah. And you thought, I can't, I have to get this board. This board has to be there by tomorrow morning so that the crew has something to, to work on. Mm-hmm. And about three in the morning, I would just begin to sob because I was just in so much despair and there was nobody there to help. You know, there's, I, I was there by myself, Dean as well. And I'd be crying. And then I would have to go and stop crying because I was like, if you keep crying, you won't get your board done. So you'd like, <laughs> you'd like stop crying and like swallow it and then keep drawing, you know? And then by, you know, five in the morning, you'd get a few hours sleep and you come in the next day with your board 
So when he said that, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe you're going through that. So we did a lot of hard work and some late nights, but we also had like a lot of free time and a lot of, you know, a lot of fun. So overall, it was really ideal. That was yeah. Lilo and Stitch was about, we, we modeled it after Beauty and the Beast, which is a movie that I got to work on. And I always considered that Don Hahn was the producer. And I always considered that to be like really the ideal film. It was about four years start to finish which you don't want too much time and you don't want, you know, you don't want to be on too short a schedule. So you don't want too little, you don't want too much. You want the exact right. You want the perfect amount of time. You want to keep moving, but you don't want to, to, <laughs> you don't want to overthink things. Like just get it done. Right. So we modeled Lilo and Stitch after that. <clears throat> it's funny you bring that one up because I had Aaron on and uh, I had Tom on as well. Tom Cita, both those guys both worked on beast as far as the animation part and animation part goes. And, uh, I can't remember how we got to it. He was like, yeah, but it was like four movies. And I was like, four, what do you mean four movies? And I can't remember if it was Tom or Aaron, but I know it came up with both of them. And they're like, yeah, if you go back and you watch that movie, there's like four different beasts. There's like two different hmm. Lumiere. There's, there's all of these. And I'm like, dude, man, you guys got me. Cause I didn't realize it. And he was like, it's one of those things that he was like, unless you're looking really, really hard. And he was like, I don't know if it's just, if it's me. And like I said, I'm paraphrasing, but he's like, you can tell it's like, Oh, that's an Aaron. That's a Tom. That's a, this, that's a, that. And I was like, yeah, dude. And so I went back and I tried to watch it and there were some parts where I could kind of point it out, but it's one of those things. And I, and I, and I tell people this, I like, I try to draw a correlation for what you guys do and what I do. So that way I can understand it a little bit better. So the fans know that I cook for a living and it's funny. You guys say you're going to cry at 3 a.m. So whenever you get crushed in a dinner rush or a nighttime rush or a lunch rush, or whatever it is, holidays, um, you just look over at everybody and everybody's trying, everybody's trying not to cry. You've just been beating the shit out of all day. That's all you're doing is slinging the plates. And then the first thing everybody does, as soon as they say, all right, shut it down, they, they turn off, the grills most of the time people just leave the fucking stoves on and they walk away but they turn everything down and they're like the first thing everybody goes out they're just like fuck or they go in the, they go in the freezers and they start crying um or i've seen this one of my favorite things i've ever seen is we got crushed on a mother's day weekend and mother's day um thanksgiving new year's eve and there's like one more oh, holiday those oh, are like and oh yeah new year's oh. eve those are our biggest days in the restaurant industry those are the days that make and break most restaurants right there wow. uh we did like 500 plus covers for mother's day brunch and into dinner service and there was really only four of us right so we walk outside after this and then i look over and I'm seeing everybody like I've already seen them mentally break at least four times on the line during the service. <laughs> now I'm seeing them physically break. Right. So I don't smoke cigarettes. I smoke weed. So I don't smoke when I'm at work. I only smoke when I'm at home because I'm so terrified of getting into a car and then being the reason somebody doesn't make it home. Right. So I always make sure I'm home or I always make sure I got a drive uh, driver. Um, so. I look over and then one dude has just chain smoking two cigarettes at once. So the other chef comes back out and he was like, Hey, let me get one of them cigarettes. He's like, but you don't, you don't smoke. And he was like, I'm going to fucking start today because that was the most, I, he's like, I've been doing this shit for 20 years. He was like, <laughs> this was, the, he was like, this is the most stressful 
thing I have ever been a part of my life. And he was like, I need a cigarette. He's like, all the movies, that's what you do after a hard, stressful day. You smoke a cigarette. He's like, I want to see if this shit's real. So he starts smoking, takes one puff. And he's like, man, I'm a vomit. So he flicks the cigarette and he goes back inside. I'm pretty sure he was crying in the freezer before, before we all got back in there. But yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. Like I said, when you draw those correlations, it's like, oh man, everybody cries at their job. Just oh, yeah. depends on what time of day it is, right? So this is really interesting. You know, we had a few meetings. We've had a few meetings. Like one of the things that people really never talk about is the meetings that we have after these screenings, because mm-hmm. you know the, the finished movie is not the finished one. That you know it was not the first one you did. There are many, many versions of the film, and uh, I came to fear this one particular room in Park Avenue, this building in Park Avenue on Park Avenue in New York City, and it was a Disney building, and we would have meetings. And I never had a good meeting in this room. And um, uh, I can tell a story that I, I don't think I've ever told it. And there's, there's one story. We had a, a meeting with uh, Michael Eisner after a screening of Mulan. And um, it was just it was just a really hard meeting. And after we had like worked so hard on this thing, we just felt so defeated after this meeting. And I remember walking down the hall thinking, and there was, I had become so attached to the movie that I was, parts of my life were really eroding while I was trying to get this movie. And I was, I was like John said, there were periods of time where I just wouldn't leave the studio because I felt if I left that um, in editorial, it would go off, it would go off course because, um, uh, you know, there was a lot of personalities that we had to varying degrees, we were in conflict over the story. And I was, I was the head of story. On that whole thing and i was taking it extremely personally at one point and i fought for that story and at one point i was fighting for it night and day and i would stay late and come in early to make sure that i was never i never left the studio unattended i wanted to be there no matter what because i wanted to counter anything that was going wrong story-wise yeah. and so i was walking down the hall after this meeting uh in park avenue and i was back in my hotel and i remember just thinking i wasn't you know 100 serious but i really i was thinking like if I threw myself out a window of this hotel and left a note that said, I need this one story beat to work this way, would my death ensure that they were, well, Chris killed himself. So let's go ahead and do that. You know, but I was just, I was so, so frustrated so many times and, and desperate uh, story-wise on that thing. Um, But I remember in the same, in the same room, in the same room, we had had a screening of Lion King. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was a story artist on Lion King. And I also, and then I moved into production design, which got me to Florida. And I remember that um, we screened the film and uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg was there and Michael Eisner was there. And Jeffrey, Jeffrey was usually the guy that we sparred with over Mm -hmm. the story and he would challenge us on things and he would question things and we would and we would fight with him on things and that was mainly the directors that had to endure that but as a person on the story crew I was always there so I knew exactly what was going on on all these things story-wise and we went into this screening room uh, and we showed the film and Michael was very distracted he had had uh, he had had some really tough things happened that day he had had some meetings ahead of time and I remember that I was sitting I was sitting right behind Michael and um he was looking at the movie, but occasionally he would look down and I could tell that he was thinking about something else. And he was a really attentive guy, really smart, really attentive. Um, uh, and he paid attention to these things, but this was an anomaly. I, could, I was sitting right behind him and I was really far back in the theater and I was the only person behind him. And I noticed that he was looking down and he was in thought because I think he was re- 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 reviewing his day. And there was this critical moment where 
you know, Simba comes, he meets, he meets Rafiki and Rafiki says, follow me. And Rafiki leads Simba to this little pool of water. And he says, look, you know, look at, look, look at what's, what do you see? And he says, I, I see nothing. And he says, look harder. And this is that moment where the Mufasa's ghost manifests yeah. itself. And Michael was looking down and he didn't look at the screen during that section. And, um, and kick the, the back of his chair. No, oh my God, no! You know, and the, the, the you know the ghost comes and he says, "Simba, remember who you are." And this whole thing happens, and the music comes up. There's all this drama, and then he disappears. And as soon as he disappeared, Michael looked back up, and he was, like, <laughs> and I thought, "Oh my gosh, I don't think he saw that part." And in the meeting in that in that room afterwards, we were having the meeting, and the Mufasa's ghost came up, and Michael said, "Yeah, and about that, I don't know why did Simba go back." And and Jeffrey was like, "Why? What do you mean? Why did <laughs> that started this whole thing?" And I thought, "I can't. I don't feel comfortable raising my hand and saying, oh, he missed that part.' Like he wasn't looking up during that part." Um, uh, but it was just one of those things. It's just one of those things. And you know, normally he was very very attentive and stuff. But it was just one of those things. He'd had a very difficult morning, and and I remember that that was one of those. Things. And eventually, I was like, I don't want to be in this room anymore. Like, no, I I personally have never had a good meeting in this room, and it's always been a very difficult room. Um, yeah. So Aaron Aaron told this uh, story about Brother Bear, and he was like, when I first got on there uh, and directing it, he was like, <clears throat> excuse me. He's like, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. He was like, I was nervous every single day. He was like, so he was like, I listened to everybody and we put everything in it that we possibly could. And then we was, I can't remember if it was Jeffrey or Michael, um, um, but they were talking about, so we did a screening and then he was like, one of, one of those two guys, he was like, so he waited till everybody left. And then they, he did one of these looking over this shoulder, looking over that shoulder. And he was like, well, we learned what we don't want in the movies. So we need to fix all of this and i was like <laughs> that, that must have hurt didn't it he's like yeah he was like they were so supportive though he was like they were so great he was like they gave me all of everything i needed he's like they gave me so with you and in 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 uh dean was that this was the first movie you guys direct it is it is and we were writing it we were directing it and um and we didn't and it's a funny thing because early on um Thomas Schumacher, who was the head of uh, feature animation, and he deserves more credit than anybody else. That mm. film exists literally only because of, of him. Yeah. Um, he, he protected that film, he believed in that film. And uh, there's a lot of things about that, that film. The reason it is such an anomaly in animation and in, in, the, Disney, um, in the Disney series is because of Tom Schumacher. He was like, this is a quirky movie. And, and early on when he saw, um, he saw the, uh, the outline boards for it, one of the first things he said was, you know, this movie, its strength lies in very fragile places. Mm -hmm. And this movie will not survive the normal process that these films must endure. So we, and, and so we, it had, he said, this film needs time to grow strong enough to withstand that kind of scrutiny and those kind of notes. And so Dean and I were like, well, what are we gonna do? And he said, we're gonna hide it. Mm -hmm. And so that film was not seen by the, 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 the people on the main lot until it was nearly finished. 
Um, and we would ask Tom, like, so how are you managing to like get this whole thing? Like, and he said, you know, I go to these meetings and, and you know, they, we go through the list of things we're working on. And when we hit Lilo and Stitch, you know, they'll say like, what is this? And he's like, oh, it's, it's a thing, you know, we're working on it, you know, it's not quite ready, but you know, we'll let you know. And so he would, I guess he would just sort of maneuver around the question and then keep going. And this went on for years until we got to the point where we were ready to roll it out. And, um, and he did. He 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 saved that film. He he made that film by protecting it like he did. Um, you know, at the Oscars, when people get up and they so often say people believed in this film, we're so mm -hmm. glad that they believed in it. That's not just lip service. Like yeah. m movies, you know, there's no <laughs> there's no government mandate that we must make <laughs> movies. These things just get made because a lot of people get together and say we want to make this. And it's it's no different than when you get together with your you get together with your friends and your Super 8 camera or these days your phone or whatever and you get a bunch of friends together and go let's make a movie and that's exactly how it works in large scale. Like, you know, Thor Love and Thunder is no different. A lot of people got together and said let's do it. Let's make it. And they're okay. And so you grab your friends and you make the movie and um, it, yeah, so you've got to have somebody that believes in the movie that, that says we're going to stick with it through those moments where the movie isn't very good. And Lilo and Stitch had those moments where we put it up and uh, we had a meeting and, and Roy Disney said, um, you know, I, I really like this movie and I liked Stitch when I thought he was a baby. But when I realized that he was the, the, the one of the leaders of a gang of aliens, I didn't like him anymore. Mm -hmm. And indeed, in the original pitch, Stitch was an alien who had other aliens that he was in charge of. And eventually they all gathered together and they had this big you know, reckoning on Hawaii. And it was at that meeting that the movie made a giant shift because when Roy Disney said that, you know, my, my heart sank and I thought, oh my gosh, you know, it was one of those moments where you think we're going to lose the movie. Yeah. And um, but he was he was great. He was not being mean or anything. He was just being his his normal self, which is a very earnest, very honest guy. Mm -hmm. And he delivered it exactly like that. He said, I liked him when I thought he was a baby. And I thought, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? And then I was I was just I got really quiet for a minute. And then I said, well, let's see. I mean, if he's going to be the one and only alien, you know, in the beginning of the film, they they keep him in a jar and guys that look like they're wearing hazmat suits move him around they treat him almost like he's a virus like Hannibal Lecter almost yeah and then yeah. I said and the equivalent of a virus would be a mutation and I said what if we just make him a mutation what if Jumba made him and he's a one-off and I remember looking over at Tom and Tom just nodded he was like Yes. <laughs> and that was that that became the final version of the film. But we did have a version before that. So, you know, we, we had those moments. We used to we used to show our films to Peter Schneider. And Peter was so famous because he was one of the heads of the studio. And Peter was so famous for just like being brutal. And no matter what we showed him the first time he saw like a cut of the film, he'd go, well, I don't like it. I don't understand it. I don't like the characters. I don't think it's successful. I think it's confusing. I think the story is 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 no, is no good. Um, and I think it's a it's a complete failure. And then there'd be silence. And then Tom would go, "Anything else you want to add to that?" <laughs> and you're like, "Ah!" And you're like, "Okay." He's like, "Well, let's begin." You know. So there's two things I want to circle back to. One at the beginning of the movie. Uh, one of my favorite scenes. And I don't mean this in a disparaging way. Like I, when I say a throwaway scene, it's just like very few people, I guess, will if they haven't watched it as many times as I have, they probably didn't see it. 
but it's something in there that I knew an animator threw in there just as a gag. So when I say throwaway scene, it's not, a, not like I said, it's not a disparaging remark. But one of my favorite parts in this whole movie is when they're wheeling Stitch in, like I said, like Hannibal Lecter, and he's in front of the entire council. And then the the leader is talking to him and talking to Jamba. And then the, the you know he Stitch says something right, and even if you watch it in subtitles, you don't know what it says because he's it's in his own language. And yeah. then the little robot pukes, and he's puking yeah. at nuts, wa uh, washers, and bolts. Yeah. That thing to this day <laughs> makes me laugh. Do you know what animator who threw that in there, or how that scene? I, like I said, it's so small, it's so quick, and it's so out there, but it it makes me laugh. Like I'm 33 in August, it still makes me laugh. <laughs> You know, I, I don't remember which animator did that one particular character. Um, I'm sure there's ways to find out. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the thing he says is a thing that I have to get into a lot because, um, you know, I, I did a thing online about this whole thing and people then say, well, what did he say? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, it's impossible to know what he said because if I if I had the if I had the English equivalent of that in my language and i said it it would have to be something so vile mm -hmm. that you might actually faint yes so like so there is no equivalent and they're like yeah but just tell us what it is i'm like that's what i'm telling you it's and then my wife you know my wife my wife jess finally said you know it's the equivalent in language of whatever was in the suitcase in pulp fiction oh man that's, that's the answer and i was like that's a great answer does your wife work in work in film because she needs to after that kind of uh, that kind of enlightening little term right there. That is phenomenal. That's it was genius. I was like, that's the answer right there. Like you yeah. can't you can't. It is unknowable. You just have to fill that in in your own way. So I do the same thing. Uh, do you, I see Harley Quinn in the background? Um, do, do you read comics still? I, I, I don't not very much. There was a period of time where I was really into it. And then time, in fact, I was, I came to Kirkwise. Kirkwise read a lot of comics. And when I was working on um, uh, Beauty and the Beast, I remember I came to him and I said, I don't read enough comics. Can you tell me the right ones to buy? And he said, okay. And he made a list for me. He's like, these are the ones you want to you want to read. And so I would go to the comic shop and buy those. And I was like, oh, these are really good. <laughs> he's like, yeah, that's why I gave you the list, Chris. <laughs> exactly. I was like, hey, he's right. These are good. So the only reason I bring that one up is because uh, whenever, like I still go every Wednesday, most of the time it's every Saturday now because that's the day I get off, but I still go and get my comics every week. And one thing I cannot stand that they do is they do all these crossovers, right? So mm -hmm. I was buying crossover after crossover and they'll cross over, you know, four issues with six different books. And it's annoying because I have no interest in the books they're crossing over, but I'm one of those completest collectors that I have to have. I have to have it is what I'm getting at. I'm, so I'm, I'm training myself to get out of it. And the way I've done that is the same way your wife just looked at it with Pulp Fiction is... I go up to the I go up to the counter and the clerk goes, "Hey, you want to get these other three books?" Then I'm like, "No, I don't." They're like, "Well, you're not really going to know the story." I'm like, "I'm just going to make it up in my head because I'm pretty sure whatever story's in my head is going to be a lot better. My 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 wallet will be a little bit heavier, um, and I just I'm not going to have 17 issues of whatever title I'm never going to read again because it's just a crossover. It's stupid. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad somebody else is thinking like that, but um. <clears throat> So we're about at that hour mark. And this at this point in time, 
uh, I like to ask some fans questions and stuff. But uh, before we hit the fans questions, you brought up a name, and this is the other thing I want to circle back to. Uh, it's come up a few times. Tom Cito claimed or named him his favorite billionaire. Uh, Roy Disney has come up a few times. And uh, I got to imagine with you, <clears throat> excuse me, working at Disney and being able to chat with Roy Disney, you got to have a favorite story or two of Roy. But whenever oh, you yeah. hear that name Roy, do you have a story or a memory of Roy that comes up as soon as you hear his name? Oh, yeah. Um, there's so many stories. Uh, oh, my gosh. Um, so I remember at one point we were going somewhere and um, Roy had this jet. It was a G5, G4. Uh, it was a Gulfstream. It was a Gulfstream. Okay. And um, we were going somewhere. And uh, occasionally I would get to go on these trips, depending on, you know, what we were doing. And, um, and he had this, I remember he had a binder on his lap and it said Boeing on it. And I, I said, what is that? And he said, oh, he said, I'm, I'm thinking about getting um, a bigger airplane. And it was this binder that he would open up and it was a, it had all these different, you could fold out the pages and it made these like huge layouts of different um, 727s and different ways you could configure the fuselage and stuff. And I know that with Roy, one of the big, one of the big considerations was what airports can this airplane land? Because he would go to Iron, Ireland where his castle was. Um, so he had a castle and he would go there and it was concerned as whether or not he could land this jet in airports that he wanted to go to. Um, uh, later on, we were, I think it was a screening for Lilo and Stitch actually. And we were going back to the Vegas airport. Oh, that's right. Because we had this big screening in Vegas and we were going back to the airport and we were, we were driving across the, um, the tarmac. And he said, would you mind if we made a little detour? And he said, I want to go visit my jet. And we were like, Oh, I thought we were, going to your jet he goes no the the new one and we drove this little golf cart thing over to a 727 a brand new 727 i've never seen an airplane like that that was brand new before and we drove up and um the gangway was down and roy walked up to the gangway and a pilot came to the to the door and roy said permission to come aboard and he said yes sir please you know come right aboard and roy went up the stairs and we all went up the stairs and walked onto his 727 which was you know it was it smelled new it had like new yeah. airplane smell <laughs> it had that new airplane smell that you know how that is um and um and the the pilot said you picked the right day to visit he said we just signed the airworthiness papers and Roy had been telling us that like there was an issue with the seats, for example, because the tolerances on the seats, there have to be a certain number of G's that the seats can withstand in case of an accident. Mm -hmm. and, the, um, and the FAA changed the ratings on those seats. So they had to tear all the seats out of the airplane and upgrade them. Anyway, so he had gone through a lot of different things. And I saw Roy's face change. And he got this really sort of interesting look on his face because he was like, huh? because we were late to go to his G5 or G4 or whatever and fly back. And so we were walking around the airplane and he had, so he had never been up in the air. It was not allowed because the airworthiness papers were not signed. He had never been into the air with this airplane. Mm -hmm. So he was sitting in his new Ferrari, his new 747. And they just said, oh yeah, we just got, we just got clearance to fly this. And so as we were walking around the airplane, Roy came by and he tapped us each of us one by one on the shoulder and he said, do you have to be home right away? <laughs> and I was like, no. And he goes, would you mind if we just took a quick flight? And we said, no, that would be fine, right? So um, before we knew it, we'd all been calling our, you know, our, our families saying, 
we may be a little bit late for dinner. And we were strapping into this our seats and they closed the doors, they filed a flight plan. And before we knew it, that airplane was taxiing out of the runway. And um, boy, was it fast. It was so fast. Um, it was not my last time on that jet, but it was my first time. And we leapt up into the air and we were flying along. And as we were, as we were reaching altitude, <clears throat> I was sitting next to one of the relief pilots. And I remember saying, hey, I have a question. And he goes, yeah. And I said, you know, you're flying someplace. And he goes, yeah. And you need gas. And he goes, yeah. I said, so you land in like Greenland. And he goes, uh-huh. And I said, and you need to put gas in the airplane. How do you do that? And he goes, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, like, do you like give them code numbers to some Swiss bank and they and, and funds are transferred? And he goes, no, I use my gas card. And he opened up his wallet and he pulled out a shell card and it said shell aviation on it. And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, well, I just hand that to the guy. And he, he swipes it. And I was like, oh, okay. So like you do at the gas station. And he goes, uh-huh. <laughs> and I said, so how many gallons? You know, I said, how much is gas? That must be expensive. And he goes, no, it's not that much. It's about $1.70 a gallon back then. He says, it's about $1.70. And I was like, well, that's not bad. And I'm thinking, maybe I can afford a jet, you know? And then uh, I said, well, how many gallons is it? And he goes, uh, 50,000. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. So that card swipe like $150,000, like beep. <laughs> and uh, oh, oh my God. So that's why, yeah. So we flew, we flew over the Grand Canyon and then took a left and came back. And uh, he said, you know, this airplane has to stay in Vegas for another few months because I can't fly it into California. And if I do that too early, I have to pay sales tax, mm -hmm. which is a few million dollars. Yes. So I, it has to live, it, it must reside in Vegas for a few more months. So that's cool, man. Thank you for sharing that story. That's, uh, Ah, oh, man, I've gotten to see some of those. Uh, I was in the Navy for a little while. My last few commands were aviation. So I've gotten to see some of those credit card bills pile up and some geez, just a little screw that you can go to Home Depot Lowe's, right? Looks exactly the same as some of these aviation screws. Being a supply guy and having to order all of this stuff, you see fucking $20,000 for a little 29 cent screw that you get at Home Depot Lowe's. It, it's insane how expensive uh -huh. aviation stuff is. So I can only imagine... Uh, what, what Roy must, he must've felt like a little kid, um, getting to fly his new plane. Um, but, uh, you know, so as we transition, man, I've had a lot of fun. And like I said, like I tell everybody, there's no way we can cover your entire career, even a fifth of your career. Um, in just a little time that we have together. So I'd love to have you back on down the road. Whenever you got some free time, I'd love to oh, have yeah. you back on, man. Uh, cause this has been a real blast for me. Um, so the two questions that I, I let you know beforehand, man. So your Mount Rushmore, your four plus one of your inspiration when it comes to the animation field. You got four, four people plus one. Yeah, I'd say like animation slash art. Um, uh, John Lounsbury, mm -hmm. he's one of the, he's one of the, um, one of the nine old men. And yes. I don't think he gets enough love. I think is he, he did, your favorite out of the nine old men. I, he is, I really, I love his, I love his animation. Um, he did the wolf in Peter and the wolf and stuff like that. Um, John Lounsbury. And then, uh, Drawing-wise, uh, Carl Barks, mm -hmm. he did these amazing Donald Duck comics that um, I would be, I, I could go through a whole heap of comics and always pick his out because I knew his art style so clearly. Um, I, would I would definitely say um, Beatrix Potter, um, huge influence, um, her art, Heinrich Clay. Um, and if you're in animation, you know Heinrich Clay. He was the insp inspiration for um, a lot of the stuff in Fantasia. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and then one of my biggest, just in, again, animation art is for me, it's all the same. Um, 
a guy named T.S. Sullivan. Mm -hmm. um, pen and ink drawings that I've seen a few of his originals. I've seen a few um, Heinrich Clay originals as well um, and love the art style. Um, so those are my big ones. And then you said it was Beatrix Potter? Beatrix Potter. She's Potter. the one that did, yeah, she did um, uh, The Tale of Peter Rabbit and all of those. Okay. Um, just so admire her art. I love asking this question because I get names that, I, that I'm not very familiar with. And then I get to go home and, well, not go home because I'm already at home, but I get to go and research all these people. So it gives me something to read or something to watch. Uh, out of the nine old men, Mark Davis has always been... Oh, Ruella yeah. Deville alone. I mean, <clears throat> just she is such a perfect villain. I mean, and then I've yes. I've I recently just bought his book, uh, Mark Davis Renaissance Man, um, and just going through it and looking at his pen and just his charcoal, and then the next couple pages would be paintings, and then the next would be animation. I'm just like, the term Renaissance is not a strong enough word for Mark Davis. I mean, I, I'm I'm looking at this, and I'm blown away like you read the stories like he used to trade these drawings for butchers like he would go and he would give these butchers drawings and stuff like that for food or, or whatever it was and he would just or no he was trading it for paper butcher paper so he could draw on paper um so he would give people drawings and they would give them butcher paper it's just it's so wild and so crazy to think you know over 100 years ago what people were doing to kind of fuel their interest or their passions right so he's 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 always been my guy that's and fantastic the, yeah, it's, it's, I, I love, did you ever get to work with any of the, the nine old men? I, okay. So I, I went to a Halloween party um, uh, and it was, um, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. The guy who did one of the, the sequences that was the biggest influence on me. Um, he's the one of the trains. Um, uh, Ollie? He, no. Frank. Um, no. Um Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. He had the big glasses and the trains and, um, hold on. I'm going to use my milk. Uh, no, you're hitting all of them except him. Wait a minute. Uh, this is me. Uh, Ward Kimball. Uh, Ward Kimball. Okay. <laughs> uh, I had a friend who was friends with Ward Kimball and I went to a Halloween party where we all carved pumpkins and Ward was there. Um, uh, so he's the only one of the nine old men that I met in person. One time in CalArts actually when the, um, when the, that, that, that book, The Illusion of Life, came out. Mm -hmm. um, Frank and Ollie did come to that, um, and they did a signing, and they signed a book. So I guess I can say I, I met Frank, Ollie, and Ward Kimball. Yeah, that's really cool, man. Uh, so the the second the second question is: uh, If you have two books uh, that you could recommend to any fan of animation or anybody that's in the animation field, it for sure should have on their bookshelves, man. What two books would you recommend? I mean, of course, I'm going to hit the illusion of life mm -hmm. as as um, that one. I'm trying to think art book wise because. Did you guys art. do an art of Lilo and Stitch? We did. We did. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, the story of the making of Lilo and Stitch. Um, it's a hard book to find. Yes, um, there's a few but, of them that are ridiculously hard to find. Yeah, that's a hard one to find, um, but but worth it when you can find it. Um, I immediately default to just like books that were influences on me for animation. It's tough because I was, I was always just as a kid, as a kid, I was using all those, um, those how to books yeah. that, um, oh my gosh, what was his name? The animator that did those books. This is going to not, <laughs> what was his name? Um, it'll come to you right. Oh, after. you know, I would say, I would say, um, uh, a huge influence for a story was, um, and he did all those children's books, Bill Pete. 
Mm-hmm. Bill Pete's uh, children's books, um, because he was a story artist, mm-hmm. and he his art style is very simple. It's simple. It's exceptionally clear. And I was able to see some of his um, some of his books when I was a kid. Um, I would say actually, there's a series out right now, and it's called "They Drew as They." Oh yes, or they, they drew it. as they pleased. Yes, they drew as they pleased. Um, any one of those, any one of the older ones of those that has um, uh, Mary Blair kind of stuff in it, um, huge. I would so recommend those, just as inspiration. I do. I I stress very strongly, like draw without. It's still good to draw, even if you're going to go into CG, if you're going to go into story, whatever. Draw without tools um draw without computer tools mm-hmm. freehand draw it's going to be the best way to eventually understand everything around you it sounds very old-fashioned but it couldn't be more true you know i really i i don't like to draw i tend to avoid it um for me drawing is the opposite of of riding a bicycle i ride a bicycle because i love riding a bike i don't have to have a destination when it comes to drawing i usually need a destination um because drawing is very important to me and it makes me feel like me and it can really help me if i'm having problems in my life drawing is is very healing and stuff but i always need a destination and um glenn keen would always talk about like oh i went to the beach and i and i filled a sketchbook with sketches and he'll show everybody what he drew and i'm like oh my god this is amazing and like there's a lady and she's she's uh she's she's drinking a Pepsi or she's eating ice cream or, or here's a guy and he's roller skating and there are these beautiful studies. And I'm like, you know, I should do that. <laughs> I went to the beach with my sketchbook and, you know, cut to that sketchbook hitting the trash can. I'm like, this is a, this is a disaster. I cannot draw from life for, you know, to save my life. I hate it. Um, I'm terrible at it. Um, yeah. So I, I just, the act of drawing. Is, were you, were you cursing? It's always been a struggle. Were you cursing Glenn Keane at that point? Damn you, Glenn. Oh my gosh. I, there's a few artists I know that I so admire um, uh, that can do that kind of thing that are incredible. Uh, Paul Felix is one. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, oh my gosh, there's another, and this artist, I'm going to struggle to remember her name, but she's incredible. Um, anyway, yeah. So I'd say that uh, I really recommend the, the Illusion of Life and uh, any from the series they drew as they pleased. Um, just... It will it will put your head in the right frame of mind to do, do something like that. Speak, speaking of of, of uh, oh shit, Glenn Keane's uh, you were talking about with him going to the beach in his sketchbook. Any chance that that scene with the uh, heavyset uh, foreigner or heavyset American guy that was on the beach that always had his ice cream drop and always sunburned? I always felt so bad because being a redheaded dude. I can't go out in the sun. I'm allergic to the sun, essentially. My people do so well. Like, if it ever comes down to it where it's just nothing but rain, my people are going to do quite well because we won't be held back by the uh, by the sun rays. Um, <clears throat> but was that a was that a possible nod to Glenn Keane there when his little sketchbook was that little guy there eating ice cream? No. <laughs> I, was ho- I was hoping I was on to something, Chris. <laughs> no, not that I know of. Maybe it was perhaps subconscious. Um and maybe next time i can sit here and try to connect them dots a little bit better this is one of my favorite questions and we'll get right into the fans question we'll try to ask as many as possible we'll try to answer as many as possible um but uh this one um this one's always fun because it's always uh interesting names to see what you guys throw out so animation recommendation this is where you guys get to recommend somebody that you think would have a great time on this show who should we reach out to and say hey would you like to come on the show that's a good question. Um, I mean, Rick Slater for sure. Um, 
Gosh, Rick Slitter is such a good one. Um, so many I work with. Um, you know, Alex Cooperschmidt, have you talked to him? I don't think so. Alex is great. Alex is great. I mean, he's what he's the he was the lead um, on uh, on uh, on Stitch. So um, he's fantastic. Yeah, I'm looking forward to having Rick on. So we'll reach out to Alex. That's always fun because it's always interesting because whenever I have one of you guys on that have worked with you, I always get really, really good stories. I actually got a really fun one when I had John Pomeroy on a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Tom Cito asked me to ask him, uh, ask him to explain that scene when, because did you work? I can't remember. Did you work on Pocahontas? I didn't. It, that was one of those, that was one of those things. You were either working on Pocahontas or you were working on Lion King. Got you. Yeah. Um, so, so Tom, Tom was saying, Hey, bring up that story with John, where we tried to get John and Glenn to kiss like John Smith and Pocahontas <laughs> did because we couldn't figure out how to animate this scene. So he was like, every day we would try to get him to get him to make out on the, on the, on the, on the lot. And it just never worked for us. But uh, <laughs> no, if he remembers that one. <laughs> oh, you know what I have to say? My wife just helped me. Um, the other artist that I think, uh, Claire Hummel, you may Claire not be Hummel. familiar, Claire Hummel. Uh, she can draw anything. I've never like I think between Claire Hummel and Paul Felix, mm -hmm. um, you have everything drawn on Earth. Claire can go to Bryce Canyon and she can draw Bryce Canyon, yeah, like for real, and come back and go, look, it's Bryce Canyon. She would have been in the olden days. She would have been dispatched with um, Lewis and Clark yeah. to draw America, and she would have and she would have brought it back. She is unbelievable. Is she is she still around or is she an older artist? Oh yeah, no, she's very young. Yeah. Okay, okay, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah, she's one of those. <laughs> she's one of those people you don't want to show your drawings to because you're like, she's like, look, I drew a horse. I'm like, I do not want to. I'm not going to show you the horse I drew. It's, it's horrible. <laughs> this is uh, my horse. Oh, it's a horse. Oh, that's nice. You know, you tried really hard. She's like, yeah. that's cute. Nah. Yeah, horses are amongst the things I. That's yeah. That's a full stop. That's your kryptonite. <laughs> I can't figure out how their legs or their heads and their necks work. So my, when I draw a horse, I'll be drawing its leg. It'll have one or two too many joints. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm like, okay, here's its elbow and its knee and its ankle and its other ankle and a knee and another ankle and there's a horse and a hoof. <laughs> and by the time I get to the hoof, it's a mess. <laughs> it's like Blinky from The Simpsons. It's got three eyes. Ugh. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 All right, so fans questions and uh, we'll rattle off just as many as we can, but uh, whatever the first thought comes to your mind. Uh, my friend here wrote in, uh, Katie would like to know, would you ever want to see Lilo and Stitch to be filmed as a live action movie? Disney's doing a whole bunch of live actions. Do you think uh, that would be a fun thing to see? They're doing that. I, they believe. Are. I believe they are now. I, yeah, I have information that would indicate they are i don't know where they are in the process but uh it that would be a really that's it's interesting to me because the toughest thing lilo and stitch the cartoon the original it, it works in a lot of ways because it's all hand-drawn so yeah. there's a certain there's a certain grace period that you allow it because you know nani walks into a room and there's this creature that's about three feet high with huge ears and a giant head and she finally you know she says it she says i don't think that's a dog She's like, it's not an angel. I don't, I don't even think it's a dog. So she at least says it out loud. And then later on, um, uh, uh, later on, um, uh, her boyfriend says, are you sure you're sure it's a dog? No um, way. <laughs> yeah. Away. He says, away. 
<laughs> you sure it's a dog? Um, so they at least throw it out there. In a live action film, you don't want to change the design of Stitch because he is what he is. Like that's the reason you love him is partially because of the way he looks. In a live universe, that thing coming down the street as it, Terrifying. I think it, I think it'd be a little bit harder to buy that people think it's a dog. I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily impossible. It's just one of those things that it causes me to ponder, mm -hmm. uh, if that makes sense. So. Um, that would be probably the biggest thing. Now, Jumbo and Pleakley, you know, they disguise themselves as human beings. Like, you could probably get away with that because they do their best to look like people. But you know, and and, and you know, in the in the original, in the actual, you know, the original Lilo and Stitch, um, they you know, again, Pleakley is frightening looking, but he's dressed like a he's dressed like a lady. And she says, you know, and he gets bitten by sticks. He's so nice. He says, your head looks swollen. And she says, nothing to see here. I'm okay. Go about your business. Um, uh, which is hilarious. But again, I think in a live action film, you may have to work a little bit harder on that. Um, yeah, but I think Stitch is the biggest question when it comes to that. I think that with all these films, there's a, there's your biggest limitation, I think in traditional animation is oddly enough, the camera. There's only so much you can do. You can do pans, you can zo do zooms and a lot of shots are locked off and you can pan around and stuff like that. Um, the emotional, the emotional, um, the emotion that a camera lends a film is gigantic. Mm -hmm. If you can do a slow push in on a character while they're saying something that is very important or very intense, it adds it adds immensely to the intensity of the whole thing. A kind of that kind of a move in a in a in a traditionally animated film is nearly impossible. And if you do if you do it, it's going to be a little bit distracting because the perspective change and everything. Um, so I think that when we went into CG, that was you know the computer giveth and the, and the computer taketh away yeah. and there are certain things you get and there are certain things you, you lose and one of the things we got when we moved into cg and like on how to train your dragon we could finally move the camera and that was really exciting um so now this and this is a typical answer for me because i don't know why we're talking about cameras that's all my fault so let's go back to the question <laughs> no, it's, it's I, I like when you guys really uh deep dive because like i said there's a lot of fans that absolutely love this stuff and a lot of these guys that have written in are super super nerdy about this stuff so uh whenever we can get a little bit technical for these fans i, I really enjoy it um uh an old friend of yours wrote in uh tom here and we've mentioned him quite a few times tom cedar wrote in uh, oh. he said he said ask him about how did he and dean get away with the sequence of now i gotta be honest right so i'm not as familiar with um how to train your dragons i've seen it the third one made me cry i took my son to this one uh this i think this is one of the last movies we saw mm. um um before COVID. i think it happened either right before maybe right after COVID. I'm not, i can't remember um but this is i remember this being one of the last ones this one in the adams family were the last two movies i remember seeing um but uh, with the third one I uh, said, so with a sequence of toothless and hiccup making friends, almost two full minutes without a word spoken, but vital to establish the relationship. Um, so he said, how did he and Dean get away with the sequence of toothless and hiccup? Ah, well, first of all, full props to Dean Deblois on the third movie, because Dean did the second and uh, third movies mm -hmm. 100% by himself. He wrote and directed those solo. Uh, I partnered with him on the very first one. And um, that sequence is actually, it is five minutes. And um, yeah, and that is even even our editor Darren uh, was like he cut it he the first time the first cut of it he he brought it down to three minutes and and uh, and Dean was like why did you why did you cut it down and he goes well you can't have a five minute sequence and then uh, Dean said well oh fuck no put it back <laughs> um, and um, uh, so 
I'm going to try to make this as short as possible. Dean and I learned a lesson on Lilo and Stitch when we were in the scoring section of the film and Alan Silvestri had written this brilliant, beautiful score. We were there when they scored the movie. It is the coolest thing that will happen to you in the making of these films is to go to the scoring session. It is absolute magic. And Dean and I know how much music, how much music means to a film. So Dean and I told the producers of Lilo and Stitch, Whatever it costs to buy the very best score you can possibly buy in Hollywood, you carve that off the budget and we will make the movie for the remainder. Mm -hmm. So they said, yes, we'll do that. And that's what they did. While we were in the scoring session, there were times where the theme began to, it, the, the theme started and then it began to develop. And the, you heard the entire orchestra duck down because a piece of dialogue was on the way. And, this, and you could hear the score kind of, in a sense, figuratively duck under this piece of dialogue and then it came back and it's roaring along and it ducks under another piece of dialogue so dean and i were we're kicking ourselves because we hadn't taken the music enough uh in consideration when we wrote the film mm -hmm. and we both told ourselves next time around we're going to we're going to build houses for music within the film and it worked out perfectly on how to train your dragon because our inspiration for that sequence was the sequence in black stallion where this little boy um, makes friends with this wild horse or this this untamed horse i should say that fell off a ship with him and we said, we want this to be an homage to that sequence. So we designed that sequence to be a sequence without dialogue where music would be the language. And mm -hmm. we told, we, we told um, uh, um, John, uh, John Powell from the very beginning, this is your sequence. It's the most important sequence of the film and it's all yours. And he admitted later that like, he was like, I was really sweating about that because <laughs> that's the last thing I wrote for the movie because I was just like, oh God, there's that sequence. You know, it has to be really special. Um, so he did a great job on it. But the reason that sequence is what it is, is because we, we, we designed it to be a bit of a snow globe, kind of a void. Um, there are times when you're making a movie that it is absolutely essential and best for you and your film to to tell the characters to shut up and let music do the talking. Absolutely, man. Uh, if you've ever, did you ever, I'm, I'm assuming you know who Gendy Tartakovsky is, right? Mm -hmm. All right. So did you ever watch Samurai Jack? I have. So that show is beautiful on so many different levels, but just a quick, quick thing for it. I've never seen a movie or a show use silence to the advantage that Gendy uses it. I've never, like, there's certain shows that you can watch while you're cleaning, while you're cooking, while you're doing something else, because you can kind of tap out and tap out. But with Samurai Jack, you're on, your, you're on the edge of your chair each time because you're forced to watch the show, not only watch the show, but you're supposed to feel and you're supposed to think whatever's going on in Jack's mind or whatever characters he's got going on. So it's whenever somebody uses silence to their advantage, like you guys do in these movies and shows, it's, it's phenomenal. I did just, it's nothing short of just miraculous because especially with so many short attention spans these days, it's just like, oh, squirrel or oh, keys looking off and like, no, you're sucked into it because you're supposed to feel for these characters. And uh, so I 100% agree with you, man. I, I really appreciate that one. Um, what was uh, Cameron here writes in? What was your best experience with animation or cartooning? My best experience? Mm -hmm. um... I mean, I would have to cite, I'd have to cite Beauty and the Beast as yeah. one of my very, very best because I learned so much on that film. I worked with Kirk Wise and Gary Trousdale. They were the directors, the producer, Don Hahn, one of the greatest producers. Our producer on Lilo and Stitch was, um, was uh, uh, Clark Spencer. And he was, again, an amazing producer. And, um, and 
Pam Coates on, on, on Mulan. Um, there have been so many magical moments on these things. I would have to say that like overall Beauty and the Beast, just as a start to finish, amazing experience. I grew so much on that film. I learned so much about story. We would have the week to do our boards and we would, uh, Friday was just pitch day. And everybody who was ready to pitch their boards would pitch on Friday. And we did it the old fashioned way, which by the way, I'm not an old timer saying it's better back then, but it is, it was better to pitch them on a board with a stick than to do them on computers. Um, it was better to, you had to get up there and you had to perform it and you, you pitched it in real time. So everything about that film, I think if I had one to relive, it would be that one. I think yeah. as much as I have enjoyed the others, that one for me was, was really magic. Um, best just overall thing aside from that, our trip to Africa for Lion King, that was life-changing. Um, if you, if you have the ability to go to Africa, it's Yes. It's, it's on it's on the list for sure. Like I said, I was Navy for a little while. So I've been all over this world and all over this country. There's quite a few places that I have not been able to go in Africa is for sure on the top of that list. Speaking of going to places, man, uh, did you set Lilo and Stitch in Hawaii if you wanted to take a Hawaii trip? Because I know you guys go and you scout locations and everything like that. You and the missus get together like, hey, you want to you go to Hawaii for some for some scouting? <laughs> well, we did take a research trip there and we did have a moment where I said, it's time to raise a glass to me for coming up with this idea. But it wasn't a frivolous thing. And this is one of the weird things about this whole thing is that I swear that eventually you be, you begin to get very super, not superstitious, superstitious, maybe spiritual about the whole thing. Mm -hmm. But while you're making these films, there are times where you have figurative story, like light bulbs that aren't lighting up. And you're yeah. like, yeah, that's not lighting up yet. I don't know. We'll just leave it there and keep working. And eventually months or years later, a piece of story cable comes along and it hooks up and all of a sudden this bulb lights up and you're like, wow, that bulb was in exactly the right place. Yes. And um, the reason I set that movie in Hawaii, it was a reaction to Mulan. Mulan had a huge cast of characters. It had armies and it had cities full of people. And it had a lot of characters that we had to, we had story-wise, it was a task to mm -hmm. keep track of all these characters because you know she was one to one of a larger group of people. Um, and I said, you know, next film I work on, I want to have a smaller group of characters and I want to set it in a place where it would be difficult to gather a crowd. Yes. And originally I was thinking, oh, I will set this in some rural town in like Kansas or something like that. And I had gone on this trip to Hawaii and I had a map of Hawaii on my wall. Mm -hmm. And while I was working on developing uh, the idea and getting ready to pitch it, I looked, at, I looked up at that map and I thought, hey, that's kind of a finite place. Yeah. Maybe I, maybe I could put it in Hawaii. And, um, and then of course I immediately thought, Oh, that's, that would be too much fun. Like, <laughs> you know, could you really do that? And so I thought, what the heck? And I set the movie in Hawaii. And so by the time the first pitch was rolled out to the uh, development group, it was set in Hawaii. Now here's the thing later on, um, we were working on the film and we had this character stitch who is a villain who becomes a hero. He's the only Disney character I believe that has ever done that. And he's an, he is an anomaly in uh, animated characters for that reason. And he, and in our first story reels, he was changing. He was going from bad to good. And after the very first screening, Dean and I were talking with Tom Schumacher and we said, you know, he goes from bad to good, but we don't have a reason. 
He goes from bad to good. He's just doing it because it's what we want him to do. And we realized, um, and partially a thing that we did, and partially it was a, a trip we made to Pixar. And the Pixar group, um, they had a story session where they looked at the film and they gave us notes. And it was out of those things that we realized it is it is family that is the concept that heals him. And that especially became true after Stitch went from being a guy who was the leader of a gang to a, a, an anomaly. He was, and again, we go back to that thing. He was this mutation. He didn't have a family. He, hadn't, he didn't have a semblance of a family. Well, oh my gosh, we set this film in Hawaii, which has one of the most beautiful universal healing um, uh, definitions of family ever which is in family, we learned that Ohana means that a family is whatever you want it to be. Yes. It, can be it can be a group of friends. It doesn't have to be you know, blood relatives. So here was this character who needed to change from bad to good and family was gonna be the thing that changed him. And we set the film in Hawaii. And you're like, oh my gosh, how did that happen? So that decision I made a long time ago, it was you know years before or a year or so before we realized, oh my gosh, this film is in maybe the only place we could have pulled this off. Yeah. And like that Ohana thing, it, man, that's, that shit tears me apart every time, man. Um, so this one, I wanted to, I wanted to bring it up earlier, um, but I didn't want to feel like I was stealing this guy's question. Uh, you guys are the reason that I'm actually into Elvis, by the way, and my granny would play it all the time, but I didn't really start thinking, man, Elvis was cool as hell until I saw him in Lilo and Stitch. Um, but John Mastu wants to know, what was the inspiration behind Lilo's hyperfixation towards Elvis? That was part of the, you know, we were giving her, we wanted her to be a really interesting and dimensional character that had some surprising traits. And Elvis is somebody I'm a huge fan of. Mm -hmm. And so I simply assigned that to her. I was like, she's going to like Elvis just like I do. And it was always funny just because she was such a little girl. And, you know, Elvis has connections to Hawaii. Of course, he has a spiritual connection to Hawaii. And it was just always funny, you know. Later on, it began to inhabit more and more of the film because Dean loved the idea. And Dean actually was the driver who wrote more of that into the film. So she's listening to his music and later on she decides that, you know, Elvis is the answer to Stitch being a better citizen. So if he could just be more like Elvis. So she uses Elvis as her model. And later on then, of course, you know, we, we're blundering along doing all these things and they make us laugh and stuff like that. And there's this moment uh, that in the story panels, I even had her pull out a picture of Elvis and it's a photograph of Elvis. Mm -hmm. And it's just funny because it's a photograph of a yes. real human being <laughs> inside this animated film. And you can't put your finger on why, but it's just funny. And then of course, later on, we realized we had done three things that are not allowed. You have to have permission from the Elvis estate to show his image, to, oh, wow. to use his lyrics or to use his actual recordings. And we had done all three. So uh, there came a moment where we had to contact the Elvis estate and they sent representatives to take a look at the film and they would judge whether or not they were cool with it. And, um, you know, the, the Memphis Mafia is what we uh, yes. people, I think, refer to them. And they all came to the studio and they came in and they were wearing dark glasses, which it was like, oh, they're just as I imagined they would be. And they came in and they watched the movie. And afterwards, they said, we love it. It's great. We approve this whole thing. And then after the film was done, we actually were invited to Graceland, where oh, Dean and so I, yes, Dean and Clark and I, we had a party that was thrown for us at Graceland right across the street from the from his house, um, you know, next to his old jet, which is on display. Um, but we also got a private tour, just us. And they took us on a tour of the house. And people had told me that as a, that is an amazing, worthwhile thing. And I can report to you, 
It is. It's amazing. And we had the added bonus that we were allowed to go to one of the tornado-proof archival buildings that is on the property. And we went into this building, and there were all these archival boxes. And the, the archivist said, is there anything you want to see? And we said, well, what should we take a look at? And she's like, I don't know. There's a lot of stuff in here. Pick a box. So we would we would just simply, like a game show, we would point at a box and she would open it up and she'd say, oh, and inevitably she's like, oh, this is a good box. <laughs> and she like opened one up and one of his jumpsuits was in there. And she said, oh. this is this is the jumpsuit from this concert. It is a 75 pound jumpsuit. Holy shit. We were, able, we were able to look at it. And then we opened another box and she said, oh, this is a good box. She said, these are all the things that were on Elvis's countertop when he died, and they were all packed away. So we were able to look at, and even we were allowed to sniff his high karate cologne. <laughs> it was amazing. There were boxing gloves from Mohammed Ali. There was a pair of uh, old painter's pants that were his father's because his father was a house painter. Um, and he saved those pants. It was, sent it was sentimental to him. And I even got to look, I saw... Um, uh, uh, Lisa Marie's birth certificate. On the way out, I, there was a flat file and I said, can I peek in the flat file? And she goes, yeah, sure. And she opened up the flat file and right at the very top was a birth certificate with little little purple footprints on it. So um, they were so kind and gracious and so helpful. And they were amazing people. I have to say, I, I cannot thank them enough. We actually, Dean and I received the keys to the city, which is uh -huh. actually, a it, it's a certificate. It's not, it's not a, giant foam key um so you're able to carry it with you and um but no they were they were amazing and they gave us that tour and his house is incredible and it just made me love him even more if that's possible that's that's so cool thank you for sharing that story what's your favorite elvis song oh god now you're doing it um <laughs> uh i think burn in love yeah 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 yeah, if I was going to listen to one over and over and over again, driving across country. And that was, you know, uh, uh, Chris Montan, who was the head of uh, the Disney music department at that time. He said, you know, we want to do a cover of Burn in Love. And he said, you know, really the, the, the closest living being to Elvis, I think, in some ways is uh, uh, Winona Judd. Mm -hmm. And he said she can deliver uh, on, on that level. And so we got to go to uh, 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 Memphis. Was it Memphis? No, it was Nashville. We went to Nashville. And uh, I got to see her record that song. And oh my God, holy, I get chills just remembering it, uh, man. That's so cool. And the ghetto has always been my favorite. It's such a sad song, but it's such a deep song. Oh, yeah. Um, where are we at? Oh, uh, here we are. Um, this one's fun, but I'm going to chop it up just a little bit. He said, Lilo and Stitch is one of my favorite animated films of all time. And I love How to Train Your Dragon as well. <laughs> Thank you for your efforts. My dog. Okay, hold on. He likes, he likes Elvis too. Uh, well, dog, boy, girl. What's the name? It is Buck. He is the actual dog that we used as a model for um, Call of the Wild. He yeah. lives with, there's a whole story to that. We'll have to tell it another time. But uh, he, he senses there's another dog out front. Okay, go ahead. Hold on. Pull him out of here. Hold on. Come here, buddy. Good job. Such a good job. Let him go. He did a good job. Marty's helping. Here we go. There you go. You're doing a good job. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> I had uh, I had mine up here before, but she kept trying. I had mine up here before. Her name is Ollie. I've got two huskies, a uh, female. <gasps> now they're they talk a lot, right? 
oh my goodness they don't shut up like especially <laughs> her because she's the only one i can trust so she's always out she's always by me i've had her since she was six weeks old that was the gift i got myself when i got out of the navy back in 2016 always wanted one it was the movie balto was what really sent it over i always wanted to husky after seeing that movie oh my wife loves that movie we just oh, recently watched that again yeah. so good but I, I get her and I'm like, man, so for when we we're moving back down here, we didn't have our any of our stuff like three or four days. So we were living on the couch in a blow up mattress until our stuff got moved down. Um, so she did not want to be in her like we crate train all of our dogs and she did not want to be crate trained at all. So I was like, fuck, man, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I haven't slept in three days. So I would literally lay on the couch and I would wear her as a scarf because she would lay across my she would lay across <laughs> my throat. And that's how she went to sleep for like the first two weeks. I would sleep on the couch because I was trying to potty train her as quickly as possible. She was she's still the smartest dog. She's the best dog I've ever had in my life. Uh, the male husky, he is extremely dumb. Sweetest dog I've ever had in my life, but he is dumber than a box of rocks. He makes oh. up for it in love and affection, though. Oh. Um, but uh uh, so where were we at? Uh, he said, um, bonus question. If you would allow it, Stitch is one of the most imitated voices of the last decade. How do you feel about the impressions? Uh, so that was his question. And I'd also like to know, is there somebody out there that you've heard their stitch impression? Do you think it's spot on? Oh gosh. Yeah, definitely. I've heard a few, um, few, meaning a lot. Um, <laughs> I couldn't tell you who was the most spot on um, because I, especially at Comic-Con, a lot of people come up and they, and they will, um, they will, they, yeah, I'm really kind of, I, I am proud of people. They're like, I want you to give your, uh, give me your, your assessment. Mm -hmm. I would like you to assess my impression. And I'm like, okay, you know, and then they'll do it. And uh, it's actually, most of the time people are pretty darn close. If there's a re if they're not close, it's just because their natural voice is a little bit different octave and stuff like that. But um, yeah, it's, it's not a super difficult voice to manifest. Um, yeah. It's more, it's probably the harder part is just saying naughty things saying weird naughty things is that that's the that's the art see there's an art to it in fact i just did a i just did a, i was doing a tiktok and i thought you know what i'm going to do stitch's guide to princesses and so i thought you know stitch stitch lives amongst the princesses and he knows things that other people don't so i've started this whole series i'm working on the second one where he will tell he will reveal secrets of the princesses well you just sold me i've been so afraid to get on tiktok because i i just there's just not enough time in the day I'm getting on TikTok and that's, <laughs> that's you sold me on it, Chris. So you got to, you got to follow or a subscriber, however they do it. <laughs> um, I figure we could, uh, we got two more here. Uh, Kevin Shrek, I think I apologize for mispronouncing your last name. Uh, what are your dream projects? Do you have a project out there that, that, that you would love to work on? Maybe it's uh, something you've been trying to work on or something that you've, you've seen out in the ether that you'd love to put your hands on. You know, there's, there's actually, there's one that I'm working on right now and I can't say what it is. Cause it's like, it's definitely something I, I, I pitched the idea and I just, I just spoke to one of the, um, the, uh, rights holders today. Mm -hmm. Um, oddly enough, there's a, <laughs> there's a couple of movies I want to remake that I yeah. didn't make. Um, and I don't think they're necessarily the best movies, but, um, there's a, there's a movie called down Periscope starring Kelsey Grammer and it's a submarine movie. Yes. And, yes. um, I'm, I want to redo that. I, yeah. I know exactly what to do. I think it could be, I honestly think it's the, I think it could be one of the coolest movies. I'm not saying it's not a great movie. It's a very fun movie and it was exactly what it wanted to be. Um, but I always felt like, you know what? I feel like that movie could have been more. Um, and now I'm saying this, I, I hope I'm not like being a jerk or anything like that because <laughs> I have, you know, like the, the people that made it are sitting here listening going, 
you jerk. Yeah. We worked really, we worked really hard on that. But um, but I like Lilo and Stitch a lot less now, Chris. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I was like, <laughs> but like, um, yeah. They're, they're, I'll tell you the reason is that I will, I will give them props. There were a couple of moments in that movie that I was really like, oh my god, that's that's a great moment. You know, um, I there was, I knew somebody who I knew somebody who um, they would they had this thing back in the day. Um, they had a party every now and then, and they called their party coffee and clips. And if you and you were invited to this party, and the requirement was that you bring a three to five minute clip that you really admire from a movie that you like, or it doesn't have to be a great movie, but it has to be like a clip that you really like. And so at the end of this, near the end of the party, everybody would get up and in turn, they would put their, back then it was a VHS tape uh, in, a, in a player, and they'd have that moment queued up. And they would say, and before they showed it, they would, they would say why they liked this moment from this movie and it was amazing because i actually thought well i've seen it i've seen a lot of stuff but i saw clips from movies i'd never seen before mm -hmm. and it was really really inspiring and there was a moment from from down periscope that i thought that is an amazing moment it kind of gave me chills and it made me like want to like go back like and and i was like oh i want to uh, i want to <laughs> take a i want to take a swing at this because i thought i anyway um there were places i thought we could elaborate um I want to do more hybrids. Um, I had a lot of fun on Call of the Wild, um, and I learned a ton. Everybody has to get that first one done, where you have to, where you're, you know, in over your head, and you have to learn a lot. And um, uh, perspective, absolutely. And Erwin uh, uh, Stoff was a producer. We had James Mangold come on as a producer as well, and uh, and he was on set. And I learned a ton from him. I learned a ton from everybody. Um, but uh, yeah, it was it was a huge thing. And I'm going to dwell on that because I, I, I know there's a few other things that, that um, I'd love to do. You know, here's the thing. I don't have a particular thing. I would love to do, I want to do a horror movie. Mm -hmm. I want, that is one of my favorite things. And um, I'd love to do one of those. That's, I'm just going to put that out there. The thing, I'm, the thing I'm pitching right now is not a horror movie. It's more of a fantasy superhero kind of thing, um, which I'm really stoked about. But uh, I would also love to do something in horror because if I have, if I have a, I, an evening I don't know what to do with and I'm ready to watch a movie, I will go to... My wife is so smart because when we put our DVD collections together, she said, I, I was putting them up alphabetically and she's like, don't do that. She's like, do them by genre. And I'm like, that makes no sense. And she's like, doesn't it? Because when you go to get a movie, do you say, I want to, I want to see a movie that starts with S or do you say, I want to see a comedy? And I'm like, oh yeah, you're right. She's like, it's just like, she's like, it's just like Blockbuster. Do, so we separated all of our DVDs by genre and doggone it, she was so right. Because I'll go down there, I'm like, I want to see a horror film. And so I go to the horror section and I'm like, why, so why did that never occur to me? Well, that's because, now I have you know, to rearrange all. What's your wife's name, by the way? Uh, Jessica Steele. She Jessica is a Steele. smart lady, Chris. You've yeah. got to keep her because now I have to go and redo about five or six hundred DVDs. Now this is it ridiculous. Ch <laughs> it'll change your life. It'll change your life. So they're all by genre. Jessica Steele Sanders because I have to put the Sanders on there because I ruined it. It was a good <laughs> name until I. It was Jessica Steele Sanders. Like oh, because yeah. <laughs> you know, it sounds like a spy until you get to the Sanders part. That's, that's the, every time my <laughs> wife and I want to watch a movie, what do you want to watch? I don't know. You want to watch something funny. You want to watch something sad. What do you want to watch? God damn it. I never thought about, man. Yeah, it works. She should, I don't know if she's an animation or she's writing, but she should be in somebody's story room right now. Man, that's smart. But last one here. And uh, it's from Katie again. 
um, is Toothless's movements inspired from a dog or a cat? Mostly from a cat. Um, uh, one of our animators um, that was a lead on, on that character um, had a cat that I think he adopted it. And um, he spent a lot of time studying it. So it is mostly a feline influence beautiful well there, yeah. there you go katie that was that question chris i gotta say man this has been a lot of fun i've really had this chat i've really had fun with this chat man um i never know where these conversations are going to go but i'm glad they go wherever they go um this has been one of my favorite ones really been looking forward to this one uh where can folks go and find you if they want to see what chris is up to or what he might be having coming down the road where can they go and find you at you know, I, I have an Instagram, but I have not been super active. I do occasionally do updates on that. I think probably, oddly enough, TikTok is something that I'm going to do more like live, kind of like, or not live, but like every now and then if something important is coming up, like we have Comic-Con coming up right. in, uh, in about three weeks. Oh my God, I'm freaking out. Um, so we'll be at San Diego and then later in the year we'll be at um, uh, Lightbox, which is um, uh, Big September. Channel, yeah. Yeah, so that's a really good one. It's a, it's a it, it they had their first one and then the pandemic hit and, it, yes. and it, they had to lay low for the next couple, but it's back this fall. So we'll be at those. And uh, yeah, so I tend, I'm going to tend to lean towards that. Beautiful, man. There's no other way we can end this other than he's been Chris. I've been Julian. This has been a What's My Head podcast. And this has been another piece and a very big piece of your childhood. Good night. My guest next week is longtime Simpsons director, Tim Bailey. Enjoy the teaser. So my first day, like, I get there early, nobody's there, I'm hanging outside, smoking, get, you know, get brought in or whatever. For, actually, the first person I ever met, first person I ever met was Mark Kirkland. Oh. Mark Kirkland was, he was at, like, the lunch, the breakfast truck that used to come there. And I was like, and I was like, oh, and I was, saw him, I was like, oh, you, you know, you work here, just trying to make it, like, yeah, I, you know, I work here, and turns out he was, you know, a director. I didn't know. Um, but I remember the one thing I, the one thing I remember most besides, you know, Kirkland being the first person to, I met was at the supply cabinet, they opened the supply cabinet and they're like, you need this, you need this, do you need peg strips? I'm like, sure. Yeah. Like I didn't know shit. Like I didn't I need know two. peg strips. Yeah. <laughs> peg strips, you know, for those who don't know, it's like, if you, you know, you want to move the drawing on paper, you know, you cut it and it's just a strip for the pegs to go on the animation disc. So you can put it a different way. and. I had one director that used to call me Freddy Krueger because I would always rearrange stuff and move my paper and tape it up and it was all fucked up and taped, you know, because I would just slaughter it because I would be like, oh, this shouldn't be like this. You remember which um, director? That was, that was Susie Dieter, actually. I do remember that. Shout out to yeah. Susie. <laughs> yeah, build Susie. Um, but uh, yeah, that was my first day. Um, I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know anything like I didn't everything I know about animation I learned in that show I mean I've been on it 27 years I mean I've been on it a long time in many different I think the only director who's actually done every job every art job on that show 